Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Citizen Chef. I am so looking forward to this week's show because, in my opinion, it strikes the perfect balance between being timely and timeless. You see, right now it's August, and that means it's Black Business Month. I, like I hope many of you, have been thinking a lot this past year on how to better support uh, the black-owned businesses in this country. And we actually spoke to our guest today about this very topic almost a year ago. Back then, there was a large push to support black businesses after the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer. And such a push was long overdue. And even if it is not as trendy as it was a year ago, these conversations illuminate how supporting your black local businesses go far beyond being a political statement and more importantly contributes to preserving bastions of American history and encouraging future black culinary leaders of tomorrow. Yes, I'm talking specifically about black restaurants. So I'm going to shut up now and I'll toss the mic to the incredible Corsha Wilson, uh, who is a, a food critic, writer, and, and podcast host. Thank you so much for having me. So listen, my first restaurant job, I was 17, just graduated high school, and I had been working in this restaurant uh, as a as a busboy. And so I knew the kitchen staff. And when I, when I got to the kitchen, they put me in the prep kitchen. And my boss, uh, even though I guess the chef was the boss of the kitchen, but my boss was an older black man by the name of Slim. Kind of hit it off with him, and, and he showed me that the restaurant had this recipe book that he was supposed to follow, but he, with a nod and a wink, said, I, I do things my way. Listen, he had been cooking for a, a bunch of years, and uh, you know, he just really took me under his wing and showed me a bunch of stuff, and, and kind of the closest thing I'd have to having a, a mentor, I guess, early on. And he, he looked out for me, and it was great. And then later on, when I was, I lived in East Orange. For those that don't know, East Orange is probably... 95% black. And I know you're a Jersey I, boy. <laughs> I, I am. I, I grew up in Elizabeth, but I, I lived in East Orange. And my two blocks away from where I lived, I lived near Uppsala College. And, and, and for those that don't know East Orange, it's probably 98% black. And I was commuting to New York working and on a cook's salary. So $275 a month apartment was just perfect for me. <laughs> but I, I, right down the street, two blocks away, Althea Gibson, who was a, the 
the well-known black tennis player, uh, champion. And uh, she had a, a restaurant. And I used to go there and at least once a week, number one, it was, it was a block away and it was absolutely delicious. And it was a lot of food that I, I didn't know, obviously not growing up with it. And I just would eat through the menu. And I was usually the only white person in, in, in the restaurant, which was really cool. And I kept going back. And then finally, like they were like, you know, you know, I struck up a conversation and, you know, told them I was a cook and I was just really interested in, in what was happening from a, from a culinary standpoint. And then, then it was just great. Then it was like, I was, I was the guy that they could teach. And, and that was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So restaurants in general, I, I see as like pillars of communities, but black owned restaurants in particular, they're they provide edible ties to black foodways in this country. It was really funny because I, at the time, I had spent some time in in, in Gascony, in, in south of France, in southwest France, and so much of the food from the south there was very reminiscent of a lot of the food that I saw Althea doing in her restaurant. And and so I found a kinship there. But obviously, so much of American cuisine, as we know today, was based on, especially down south, the food from that was brought over from Africa and then adapted to what was available locally. And Black foodways are incredibly diverse from like southern restaurants to Caribbean restaurants. And one of the ways that we preserve tradition and cuisine is through home cooking and through the cooking that happens in restaurants. And so when you think about like black restaurants in this country, they're really like just pillars of history and they're, you know, they're a way of preserving black history, which is ultimately American history. Right. And I mean, you could obviously say that, that, Black cuisine is really American cuisine, Um, especially when you think about regional cuisine, you think of the the cuisine that comes um, out of the South and and the regional pockets in the South as well. I mean, the food in Louisiana has a a different history than the food in Mississippi, for instance. But but all all of that is is really owed to to the black cooks who who actually created the recipes and then handed them down. In fact, when I was a, a 17-year-old um, young cook right out of high school working in my first restaurant, an elderly black gentleman who um, was responsible for doing all of the recipes in the restaurant. I think back on where we are now and think back on what he said. Yeah, the recipes are good, but I use mine. And yet this was a guy who clearly didn't get credit as a chef in the restaurant. And and that's, I guess, what, what's happening. And so when you talk about restaurants being pillars of community and, and black-owned restaurants being pillars of their community, it, but it means so much more because I think that there's a debt of gratitude that we need to give to to so many of those those black cuisines and cultures because that is what was really the, the cornerstone of American cuisine. Absolutely. I mean... It- you know, enslaved Africans really laid the foundation for what we consider to be American food. And, you know, they're not given the proper credit for the techniques that they brought, for the ingredients that were brought with them. I mean, I love that you mentioned the regional differences in Black foodways, because I think, you know, there's this notion that Black food is soul food and and period, that's it. (laughs) And that's definitely not the case. It's you know, there are so many like regional differences in, in black foodways in this country. And, you know, that is because of history. That's because of the enslaved Africans that came here, where they were from, the tools and skills they brought with them and where they landed. And then as, you know, migration happened from the South to other parts of the country, the foodways adapted too. And so black foodways are really this dynamic piece of American history that's edible. 
Can we speak a little bit more about the different regional black cuisines in this country and the links between food and community? Absolutely. So the foodways in particular, I mean, it depends on... So I grew up in the mid-Atlantic. I grew up in Maryland. And so... When you think about food there, like obviously you think of crab, there's a ton of seafood. But if you go a little bit further south, you're in North Carolina, there's a history of whole hog barbecue. If you go even further south down to Florida, seafood again, but in a totally different way, more accented with like those southern flavors that you think of. Louisiana has their own whole barbecue tradition and and seafood plays a big role there. You go to the Midwest, it's hot. And then like... I just think one of the biggest and most important part of Black Foodways is just joy and like the joy of communal dining. Coming together, eating, drinking, it's like such a big part of uh, Black Foodways in this country. It was like one of the reprieves from the atmosphere of this country in the past and unfortunately in the present, it's always been like such an important part of Black culture. And it's like, I wrote the story about fish fries and the importance of Friday night fish fries in Black communities across the country. And that actually stems from slavery. It was usually held on Sundays. It was a meal that the people who owned the enslaved Africans didn't have to worry about. Someone would go fishing and bring back some fish and they didn't have to work that day. So it was like a, a time in which the enslaved Africans could come together and have a meal. And that that tradition carried on as people migrated across the country. And so you see fried fish is popular on Friday nights in Los Angeles, here where I live in New Jersey, in Harlem, in the Northeast, in the South. Like all of these traditions come from just the joy of like coming together and being able to die. And that's like such an important part of like black food and the black restaurant community in this country. We'll be back with more Citizen Chef. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So how, how does one go about finding the, the, the restaurants they want to support? You know, there's a saying that when white America catches the cold, black America catches pneumonia. And that has been so true with coronavirus. I mean, you know, running the business and economics of running a restaurant, like the margins are super slim already. And so, you know, those businesses have now had to pivot to takeout or outdoor dining and have largely been left out of the Paycheck Protection Program. And so it's become even more difficult to run and sustain a business in this environment. So yeah, it's it's been really tough. There's a ton of resources um, online of Black-owned restaurants. There's this great uh, app called Okra, Eat Okra, and it has Black-owned restaurants across the country. And you basically just type in where you are into this app and it'll pull up all the Black-owned restaurants near you. And it's wonderful. And so it, it was started by this couple that had that same question of where do I find black owned restaurants? Like, how do I support black owned restaurants? And so they started this app and just started, you know, crowdsourcing data of black owned restaurants across the country. And it's such a wonderful resource. So do you see those black owned restaurants that are pillars of the community, you know, continuing to have a role in that community? Oh my goodness. There's something so beautiful about black owned spaces. You know, the cooking for me as a writer, Black-owned spaces really highlight the ingenuity of Black Americans in this country. But the dining and eating together, it's just, it's it offers like a bit of safety and comfort in a country that hasn't always been safe for us. And so it's just, it's the most beautiful experience to like be in a Black-owned space and to feel that hospitality, feel that warmth and taste food that just has generations and generations of history and and savvy. And, you know, it's just, you know, I am constantly blown away by how Black people in this country have made a way out of no way. And you taste that in the food. You taste that just resiliency and that survival and joy in every plate of food that you get in a Black-owned restaurant. I think that is such a beautiful point, and it reminds me of something you wrote, which is uh, when people of color say we're kept in the margins, don't write us off. Um, How does that translate to Black business ownership in the food world? I wrote that in as a response to kind of this sort of you know, this wasn't recently, it it was a while ago where people of color were saying, you know, the restaurant industry isn't isn't as hospitable to people of color as it should be. And basically they kept hearing back, oh, but the, it's, the restaurant industry is so diverse. Like, what are you talking about? And, you know, obviously this industry is way better than other industries in this country. And if you look at numbers, sure. The industry as a whole is very diverse, but when you're looking at ownership or management level positions in restaurants, it's still mostly white. And so I just wanted people to realize that if you are actually, you know, interested in making things more equitable, interested in making things, you know, actually like sustainable, then you need to listen to people of color when they tell you what's going on. And I think that's the only way that we're going to 
make a change in this industry and in this country is if we actually start to listen to people who are marginalized instead of telling them, oh, actually, it's okay. What are you talking about? <laughs> so we end, we end up perpetuating a cycle when we fail to take a step back and listen and actually work on changing those numbers. Yeah. And it's so personal to me too, because before I was a food writer, I worked in restaurants and I worked in fine dining. And it felt like even when I went from hostess to server to manager, it felt like there was this glass ceiling of how far I could rise up to you know, own a restaurant one day or, you know, be the GM. It was always someone came in, a white man came in and was the GM, you know, and I was the only black woman working there. And so there wasn't really any sort of model for me to follow. It was just, you know, we'll promote you as far as we want you to go, but there wasn't like a clear path to being a GM or even ownership. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I think something else as I'm, as I'm listening to you speak, you're right. Uh, you know, there, there is diverse industry, but the, the, you know, the leaders at the top necessarily don't reflect that diversity. You know, I know in, in my businesses, I had got in, in 30 years of owning restaurants, I think I've had two black general managers over the years. And, you know, there's that old if, if feeling and I, I uh, you know, in, in sense that to make it when you're, when you're black, you can't just be good. You can't just be, you know, you know, someone who excels. You have to be, you know, exceptional. You just have to prove yourself. And I think that's true for women. I think that's true for people of color that you have to just be really exceptional. And in these cases, these two were exceptional. And I guess that, that, that mentorship is so important because when you have black on black mentorship, People rise through the ranks, they get the proper training, and that's something else that you're supporting. You're not only supporting the owner with your dollars, you're, you're supporting a culture that will support and, and hold up other, other black people so they become, you know, managers and general, and they're trained. And then it's not only incumbent upon, you know, it's, it's, it's in a large restaurant group, people get lost and, and you know, you got to have, you kind of have to be really aggressive to climb up the ranks and, and, and you know, in some people will look at someone who's black as being aggressive and saying, well, you know, you're being aggressive. Whereas with someone white, it's like they're just a go-getter. Yeah. And so, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and so you're supporting more than just, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the restaurant, you're supporting a whole training ground for future restaurants and for, you know, for, for leaders of the industry down the road. So it's, it's more than just that plate of food. Black restaurants, like you said, like black restaurants really offer not just the opportunity for diners to like experience this culture and experience this food, but within the walls of the restaurant, it's mentorship in that restaurant and if they decide to do something else in the future that involves food. I think that's one of the things we don't talk about in the restaurant industry of how, you know, chefs that come up, you know, through the fine dining world and then go on to open up their own spaces, they can always call the chefs that they worked with or the line cooks that they worked with who may have their own spots now and ask questions about financials or labor costs or, you know, whatever. But black chefs don't have that as much. And so how do we create more of that? How do we create more spaces where black chefs have that access to mentorship that white chefs have traditionally had? And I think that supporting black restaurants is the way that we do that. 
The other thing I think is really important, and it's kind of uh, departs a little bit from supporting black-owned restaurants, but I really believe that in some of the culinary schools, in all the culinary schools, the schools there should be black food studies. Because when you have, I mean, I think about Food and Finance High. Do you know Food and Finance High? I'm a, a big supporter, and I think they do an amazing job. But you go there, and they're teaching all these you know, students who are predominantly black and, and Hispanic, they're teaching them Italian and French food. And they're, they're not teaching them to love their, their cuisine. They're teaching them to love somebody else's cuisine. And, you know, I've seen that so many times when you see, uh, you know, a young chef that's trained a certain way. And it takes, I mean, think about Kwame. When Kwame opened his first restaurant, it, he wasn't doing what he's doing now. And I know he just left his, his uh, Kith and Kim, but, but he wasn't doing, he was doing kind of more fancified tasting. And he realized that it, it didn't work and because it wasn't coming from his soul. It wasn't coming from his heart. And he was cooking somebody else's food. And, you know, I, I hear that from so many chefs. I have a friend of mine who's Persian. His name is Bizad. And, and he trained in some of the great restaurants around the world. And finally, one day said, why aren't I doing Persian food? It's a, it's a world-class cuisine and it's in, I'm sure, changing it because either, you know, th there's no model for that. And so what I think is really, really exciting is, is I mean, even think of Marcus Samuelson. You know, yes, he's, he's, he's black. He came through Ethiopia, through Sweden, and he was doing Swedish food until one day he said, hey, I got to explore the black side of, of my, my heritage. And he went back to Africa and found those dishes and found those flavors. And, you know, you think, see what Eduardo Jordan's doing and Mishima's doing. And, and you know, they're, they're they were trained in more French or, you know, Frenchified restaurants. I mean, Eduardo trained at French Laundry and one day said, that's not me. I got to do my thing. And so I, I find that to be really, really exciting right now. Like when I went to culinary school, it, we had Cuisines of the Americas was like, I, there was a day that a was day. Caribbean food. <laughs> Right. For the Caribbean, which is like 50 something country. Like right. it was just like, you know, just laughably oversimplified and just like, you know, it, I'm half Caribbean and it was just like, wait, why, why aren't we spending more time looking at the like depth and complexity of jerk, right. you know, like the, there's just as much beauty in that as any French dish or Italian dish. But, you know, we had a whole section on French cookery and the Mediterranean mm -hmm. and uh, cuisines of Asia was all compacted <laughs> right. together, right. like <laughs> all of Asia. Like, <laughs> And it's just as a writer, you kind of have to, there's that moment of asking myself, oh, wait, why we're talking about the regional like specificity of Italian cuisine from the north to the right, south right. to the you'll, islands. You'll, right, right. They'll but teach regional, about... French, regional French food. but Right, yeah. but we're not doing it with the Caribbean. That doesn't make any sense to me. The cuisines are very different island to island. So, you know, as a writer, for me, that's a really exciting thing to try and explore and tease out for readers. Like, okay, here are the ways in which like indigenous communities, enslaved Africans and colonization all come together to create these different cuisines in the Caribbean that vary from island to island. And here are some of the dishes, like just like you were talking about chefs, like kind of breaking that. Why am I not seeing my food cooked this way? Like as a writer, it's like, why am I not seeing my food talked about this way? And that's a really fun thing to do. So a piece that I wrote last year was about a super fine dining restaurant here in New York and the way I experienced that as a black woman and how, you know, this was a restaurant that was lauded and praised by all white 
<laughs> male food critics. And it was like, wait a minute, this was actually very uncomfortable for me. <laughs> like, and so, you know, what would our food criticism world look like if there were more black women writing about it? And I think you're see, it was kind of a, a lot of people reached out and said, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, or I hadn't really seen it that way. And I think that's happening now. People are really looking around them saying, oh, wait, like, oh, oh, this system was built to like, not serve members of my community, black members of my community. So how do we one, listen and two, make changes to make sure that it is equitable for everyone. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, welcome back to Citizen Chef. I want to turn back briefly to the history of black Americans in the food industry because the narratives are complex. And in fact, one of the narratives I heard is that some black people don't want to work in the service industry because it's too close to being in servitude for a predominantly white audience. Uh, Is there truth to that narrative? And does that ring true to your experiences? Hmm. So I haven't... I don't know if it's because I'm surrounded by black culinarians, but we all, you know, love being in the food industry. I think that there is, there is a shame associated with, I think in previous generations with working in the hospitality industry, it, you know, it was more, you know, we want you to be a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer because of that history of hospitality being us providing service to white folks. But I I think my generation and definitely generations after, you know, see cooking as an art form. And I don't know if that's because of the ways in which 
food in general has turned into more of a like pop culture thing. But I think definitely older generations, you know, saw it as kind of a lowly sort of profession and we should try to do something else. But I think my generation and younger, it is a, a platform that we can use to to be artists and creative. If, you know, parents of, of black children are telling them, you know, no, you don't want to be in the restaurant industry, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, like every other family in America is telling their kids they don't want them to go into the restaurant business. When I told my family I wanted to be a cook, they kind of looked at me a little crazy too. And, and so many other people tell the story. But we touched on the media for a second. Well, if there are no black food writers, who's actually writing that story for that that parent to say, "Hey, that's a that's a viable." And yeah, sure, if you want to cook that, I think that's okay. If there's if there are more black journalists, then maybe there would be more examples of why that's a uh, reputable you know business to to get into. And that is, oh my goodness, you just touched on like the thesis, of, like my work because. You know, it's not just about documenting what's going on in food right now. You know, that that Black chefs are doing the incredible, beautiful, brilliant work that Black chefs are doing. It's about making sure that, you know, a Black child in the future, if they want to be a chef or a food writer or a sommelier or a farmer, they don't have to search as hard as myself or previous generations did to find examples of people that look like them that are doing the work that they want to do. And so it's... You know, I I try to avoid writing about food and, and black chefs in this trendy sort of way, because this work is actually way more subversive than I think people realize. Like it's about documenting black food for the future because it's been here. It should have been documented then and it wasn't. It's it's happening now and people are going to build on that, like just like the enslaved Africans that came here laid the foundation. It's about documenting that foundation for people to build on in the future. So why is it important to keep this conversation going beyond the current moment and into the future? Because when Black businesses thrive, communities around them thrive. Restaurants are ecosystems that impact not only the people who work there, but guests, farmers, vendors, neighbors, like the larger community. So when you make sure these businesses thrive, you're investing in the future. Right. I think there's a whole other conversation to have around supporting black farmers. I read something, I think it was in Civil Eats, that there's uh, a couple hundred thousand of black farmers that do $50 million in businesses, and there's thousands and thousands of white farmers that do over you know, $50 million in business. And so, you know, by supporting black restaurants, especially if those restaurants are supporting black farmers, that is a, I mean, obviously that's, that's the ecosystem that you need to create and, and, and continue. So everyone, everyone flourishes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, of course, this has been great talking to you. Yeah. Always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I honestly, I, I feel like I could talk to Korsh for hours beyond the limited time we have uh, for our show. As mentioned, the black culinary experience is not a monolith, but the through lines identified are intrinsic to this country and, and this world. They also point out in conversations, even just a year later, was such a good reminder that the fight is not over. In fact, it's really just beginning. I also want to end on a note Korsh mentioned about the joy uh, you are served in each plate at a black-owned restaurant. And I think those of us who are not black need to remember how lucky we are that we're able to partake in these culinary experiences and, and how important it is that we keep supporting these businesses way beyond and not just in August. Thanks to Corsha Wilson and make sure you check out her podcast, A Hungry Society. And as always, a very warm thanks to A Place at the Table 
Citizen Chef is executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis, produced by Gabby Collins, and researched by Lillian Holman. Tell us what you want to hear with the hashtag CitizenChef, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.